0: Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday the 8th of March. It's just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and also our very own
1: nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Okay. Uh, we're going to get t- kicked off with digital ID. I am going to label this as digital ID is here because effectively it is. Uh, we have a uh, a new version of the uh, Data Protection and Digital Information Bill being presented to Parliament today. Uh, There's a revised version. So, the, uh, this is the, well, it's being marketed by the British government as the UK's post Brexit replacement for, for Europe's GDPR data regime. Uh, it was first introduced last summer. It was paused in September so that, quote, ministers could engage in a co design process with business leaders and data experts. Uh, and uh, it was then subsequently moved from the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport into the new Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. Uh, So uh, here is the bill as it was originally uh, constituted, it's been updated, but I just wanted to have a look at the main text here. A bill to make provision for the regulation of the processing of information relating to identified or identifiable living individuals to make provision about services consisting of the use of information to ascertain and verify facts about individuals, to make provision about the access to customer data and business data, to make provision about privacy and electronic communications, to make provision about services for the provision of electronic signatures, electronic sales, and other trust services, to make provision about the disclosure of information to improve public service delivery, to make provision for the implementation of agreements on sharing information for law enforcement purposes, to make provision about the keeping and maintenance of registers of births and deaths, to make provision about information standards for health and social care, uh, to establish the Information Commission, uh, and to make provision about oversight of biometric data and for connected purposes. Now, this a couple of points there, obviously, the uh, about provision about information standards for health and social care, Uh, and also the establishment of an information commissioner. Of course, we already have an information commissioner's office, but it's being changed somewhat. So let's just have a look and see what they're attempting to claim about this new digital protection and digital information, data protection, digital information bill. So it's going to introduce a simple, clear and business friendly framework that will not be difficult or costly to implement. Uh, It's going to ensure our new regime maintains data adequacy with the EU. So maybe it's not going to be so different to GDPR after all. Brilliant. Brilliant expression,
0: data adequacy. Yes.
1: Adequacy. What does that mean? It's going to further reduce the amount of paperwork organisations need to complete. It's going to provide organisations with greater confidence when they can process personal data without consent. Now, this was uh, this is an interesting point with respect to health data because, of course, uh, people think that they can opt out of data sharing with respect to their health records. Uh, but of course, the, the government then turned around and said, well, actually, if it's got anything to do with coronavirus, uh, that opt out doesn't count anymore. And then finally, uh, increase public and business confidence in AI technologies. Uh, we go on. They said that it was going to unleash more scientific research. Uh, as I say, it's going to introduce reduce unnecessary paperwork. It's going to increase public and business confidence in AI, as they've already said. And then they said it's going to support international data sharing because this is about creating an international, a global uh, data protection regime. Uh, so here's the lovely Michelle Donlin, uh, Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology. Uh, co-designed with business from the start, this new bill in- ensures that a vitally important data protection regime is tailored to the UK's own needs and our customs. Uh, our systems will be easier to understand, easier to comply with, and take advantage of the many opportunities of post-Brexit Britain. No longer will our businesses and citizens have to tangle themselves around a barrier, the barrier-based European GDPR. So that's fantastic stuff, isn't it? Except when it comes to digital identity, uh, and at this point, this new department for uh, science innovation technology isn't saying very much about digital ID, but they do have a plan for this. It's called the uh, DSIT digital identity program. And this is what it says. In the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, we're working to help people securely prove things about themselves, such as who they are or what their age is, without having to repeat, repeatedly present physical documents. The government is not making digital identities mandatory. They lie. Uh, this is not a step towards ID cards. They lie. Instead, we're setting robust standards to make sure private sector solutions protect privacy, boost security, enable greater accessibility and save time and money for individuals and businesses. This is exactly the approach they're taking with the uh, online safety bill. They're moving it onto the private sector to enforce and make it mandatory, but it's not just the private sector because we've already mentioned the fact that government uh, websites are gonna be using the new gov.uk one login. Everybody's gonna be using the same and it's gonna require this digital ID in order to access any government Uh, service. So uh, government services, including benefits, uh, the tax regime, even car registrations, and then the private sector, you want to open a bank account, including upcoming CBDCs. uh, Or if you want to get a job, you're going to need this ID as well. Uh, the, uh, The document goes on to say that it's all about maintaining trust in digital identity products and services as uptake increases and technology develops. We're setting up a governance structure underpinned by legislation, and that's this new data protection and digital information bill uh, to ensure standards are being followed and to keep them up to date. And so uh, they're setting up an entire infrastructure for this, private sector providers who will provide digital identity or attribute services, certifying bodies who will certify services against the standards government sets, uh, use case schemes uh, who are looking to build on our standards in particular use cases or industries and employers, businesses, and other bodies, sometimes known as relying parties who want to use digital identity services. This is all on its way. This legislation enables it. Uh, And in the meantime, of course, they've got to build the narrative. And in order to do that, they have just uh, advertised and closed finally, because the closing date on this was the 24th of February, 2023. And an identity fraud evidence-based review project in order to generate the propaganda that they need or the data to back up the propaganda that they need uh, to convince everybody that digital ID is a great ID, idea so i don't know what your thoughts
0: are on that well just coming in on your last point there the value of the contract 25 to fifty thousand pounds they're going to get nothing for that so i would agree with you what this is is this is just an exercise they want something where they can throw it at the public to say therefore we we need all of this uh, digital identity look at this survey or whatever happens um but uh Yeah, it's coming in thick and fast. Nobody is questioning it, with the exception of the UK column. Uh, Nothing in the mainstream media, the journalists all asleep. But of course, this this is going to be a net which is going to ensnare everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a government official or police or member of the judiciary. uh, People unknown to you are going to know everything
1: about you. That's the danger. Yeah. Alex and Debbie, just very briefly, Alex, uh, what are your thoughts?
2: This is where the Netherlands was at already uh, nearly 15 years ago when I came to live in the country. Their version is called digi or DigiD, if you use an English pronunciation uh, and the Dutch government used the same line when it came in. It's not mandatory. It's just that uh, private businesses and indeed uh, arms of the executive like the people who do your driving test and your tax returns, they will have to have it, you see. So uh, people like my mother-in-law, who's never really used a computer, cannot do their tax returns without the, the likes of us stepping into hell. And in, in the end, you could end up with major fraud that way, because if we were so minded, we could log in as her and falsify her tax return, and she would be none the wiser. Uh, this is, of course, the central lie at, um, at, at the, the heart of it all is uh, this word of trust that's banded about. We know who we're talking to. No, you don't. You know which identity was used to log in and do whatever transaction Uh, was at stake. And I understand there is a great carousel now uh, of people who've been in the the various uh, parts of the underbelly of government that deal with this, revolving their way, carouseling their way into the trust and verification businesses, which is becoming a multi-billion industry as we speak. So it's another one of these uh, self-justifying strands of propaganda, isn't it? You need this trust that we're going to sell to you uh, at at exorbitant prices because, uh, insert business case here.
1: Yes. Uh, Debbie, have you any thoughts?
2: Um, Well, it's
3: very interesting to hear what Alex said, because I completely back everything up that he's just said and trust. Um, I think you'll see later on in the news, we do come on to trust. But for me, this is all about surveillance, uh, social credits, all of that rolling in under the disguise of um, digital ID
0: okay uh, debbie well we're coming back to you in just a couple of seconds but let's uh, remind people of that famous sunday telegraph headline hancock's plan to frighten the pants of the public so here was the telegraph pushing out a huge amount of information showing that the british public as a whole simply could not and cannot trust the government because they were um, they were lying about what they were doing they were using this uh, Fear psychology in order to get people to adhere to a lockdown, uh, a lockdown where people were fearful of a virus which they needn't be fearful. So, can we trust the government? No. But Telegraph uh, put a full page on Sunday, the 5th of March. Uh, but uh, now let's have a look at uh, Wednesday, the 8th of March. And what we can see very clearly is that the COVID story. Uh, highlighted in red at the towards the bottom of the screen, uh, that is buried under the front page of what I've labelled Lineker Nazi Dross. So the Telegraph really showing its colours here because ultimately this is all about um, what is it about? It's it's um, it's about selling newspapers. It's about razzmatazz. This is not about the safety of the public. Um, the headline: COVID vaccine could not be fast tracked because of the low death rate Uh, but that's buried under nazi migrant jibe so i don't think we can trust the government i don't think we can uh, trust the press at all on this one i don't think we can trust many of the people in the so-called mainstream media and uh, debbie you've got a clip here from jeremy vine which you found interesting
3: Yes, um, I caught this on Jeremy Vine and I did think it was interesting because, you know, once you see one lie, you start to see more lies. So let's have a look at the clip and see the reaction of somebody that has obeyed all the rules. Let's see what he says.
4: This. So this is the, the, where it all start, where the anger over these WhatsApp messages started because he, Hancock, clearly, clearly suggests you use the new variant, which was the Kent variant, end of 2020, to frighten the pants off everyone. He says we've got to frighten the pants off everyone with a new strain. When do we deploy the new variant? Almost like it's a deliberate calculation. And I want to bring in somebody, friend of the show, Graham Taylor, who took the lockdown rules very seriously. And last night you got in touch, Graham, and you said you were absolutely disgusted.
5: Jeremy, I'm on the verge of tears with anger. I'm not usually an angry man, but you know, Matt Hancock, if you're watching this, you are responsible for putting the nation into fear. I did everything you asked for. I took your jabs. I stayed in at home i didn 't go to the pub i I, I stopped my family life. My, the kids didn 't go to school. Their education suffered and and you 've done this it 's a psychological operation against the people of this country jeremy i i 'm just appalled i 've always supported the government you know I, I, as a police officer, I was always told to obey orders and i did i 've done everything in life to do what the government wanted and now i don 't trust them and you know, the conspiracy theories of 2020 are all turning out to be true. And for Matt Hancock to say something like, he will block funding for children. It's just immoral. And the man should be put before the bar in parliament, and if not prosecuted, because this, this is horrendous. It, it goes deeper and deeper. And what will more revelations show as time and history you know, turns on? What happened in that time? You know, I lost two years of my life. And I am very, very angry, Jeremy.
4: So, so had he not done his psychological operation, as you describe it, you might not have gone into the deep lockdown you went into. Is that right?
5: We wouldn't. We wouldn't. We we sat in fear when um, Boris Johnson came on the television, and in his Churchillian speech, you know, said what we all had to do to save the NHS. And the NHS have been good for me. They saved my life on more than one occasion. And we thought it's our duty to do this. Yet covid was nothing more than a a respiratory infection more people were dying of the flu we weren't told this we were told that this was a killer disease and many hundreds of people were going to die and we were shown the figures every day of deaths and yet a lot of the covid deaths are now being told that they were from other things and covid was maybe just a contributing factor you know we were told matt hancock would put a protective ring around old people's homes and he didn't he just let them die You know and we went along with it all we were conned we clapped for the nhs and really what's coming out now that this was just a political game it was an an exercise in population control and i'm not a conspiracy theorist but i'm starting to believe what a lot of what they are saying is true and i'm a very angry man
4: thank you very much graham taylor thanks for getting in touch last night i was i was amazed graham's message was um you know as you can see really heartfelt gemma absolutely
3: and there you can see a very angry and passionate man, but no mention about the people that have died. And what will future revelations show? Will they, will they highlight those that are vaccine injured? Will they highlight those that have lost their lives through the vaccine? And will they highlight the people that lost their lives through medazolam and morphine? What will future revelations show? But clearly the conspiracy theories that we were allegedly Throwing out in 2020 are not conspiracy theories. And let's remember a conspiracy theory is only a conspiracy if it's not real. And this is real.
0: Yeah, thank you, Debbie. Well, just, just to correct you, that gentleman did actually say, and they died. He did mention that people had died. Uh, but um, uh, never mind Jeremy Vine, the guest there clearly motivated and realised that he's been conned. But what about Jeremy Vine himself? Let's have a look uh back in march sorry in april 2021 to this clip to see a very different jeremy vine
4: Here's a free home covid test from friday everyone can access two per week this is a big story today you'll be able to get them at testing sites pharmacies and sent through the post you won't need to return them to a lab these are lateral flow tests to give you a result in just 30 minutes The Prime Minister and Health Secretary say they hope the testing will help to squash any COVID outbreaks as we start to ease our way out of lockdown. So the idea is we get them and we take them, because it goes wrong if people refuse. And I wonder, Jenny, what you think, whether it's selfish to refuse?
6: I think there's probably lots of reasons people are going to refuse to take these tests. I mean, some of it will just be um, fear about what they find afterwards. Um, I think some of it could be about allergies. Some of it could be genuine health problems, and so they can't take those tests. Um, it, I think it would be wrong to call it selfish. Some people could refuse through ignorance and denial of the um, damages um, that, that are happening in society with the pandemic. So
4: um, I would call Not selfish. Okay, Sarah has a test here. You know, no, no allergies
6: to that. Are you? No, no, no allergies. If you've got, for instance, we did hear a couple of weeks ago a father whose child's got severe um, learning disability and behavioural problems and just can't be pinned down for it, and that I think is a problem. But I've got allergies to people sticking. Fun,
4: well, I've got allergies to people sticking stuff up my nose. I've discovered, and if that's. I, I mean, I, 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 honestly, I do. I do not want that to happen again. Well, this Happened is. Over
6: Christmas. This is so easy to do, it really on, is. Shows. It comes in a box like that, you've got your instructions there, I've got all my kit, got my tissues, got my sanitizer, would be washing my hands normally, basically a little bit of liquid comes in there, open it up, pop it into this pot there, the box even comes with a stand, so you can pop your box in there, that's your testing thing. Right. Are you so going to lift yourself now? I am. On, I'm now. So I'm going to blow my nose, Okay. in a ladylike manner. Okay. Oh,
4: that wasn't was nothing,
6: nothing from your toes, that one. <laughs> toes. Um, I would normally wash my hands for at least 20 seconds, but I have washed my hands just before I came in, so I'm going to sanitise them instead. All right. And then I am going, I'm not doing this quite properly for speed. So then you take the swab, the swab comes out really easily. You take this, you open the end here and you do not touch. Ah. This is the, this is the non-cotton bud end. You take out that end and all you're doing is use a torch very easy to do just open your mouth don't touch your tongue and you're going to pop it in use a and torch yep so that you can see use a mirror and a torch so you can see and you don't touch your tongue pop it on the back of your throat four rubs on each side so like this and then pop this in there one nostril only till you meet some resistance and then one two three four five six seven i'm gonna sneeze eight nine, ten. And
0: so utter hypocrisy by Mr. Vine, because basically here he is promoting the scam and delivering it, as Mike has just said to me, in, in a manner for children. And, and what is anybody who dared challenge what was going on, labeled as selfish, ignorant, or in denial? So uttered, utterly disgraceful. If Jeremy Vine had done his job and listened to alternative viewpoints at the time, he might have been one of the journalists who maybe would have meant that we're not in the mess that we're in now or suffered as we did in lockdown. But of course, that procedure, Debbie, was also medically incorrect because she was using the same swab for her mouth and her nose, if I understand that is uh, is wrong.
3: Oh, honestly, Brian, there were so many things that were wrong with that clip. Um, number one. Um, I was an ENT nurse and there's no way that I would have performed a nasopharyngeal swab like that. You never, ever use both sides the throat, then shove something up the nose. It's a really delicate procedure. It's an invasive procedure. It's not something that members of the public should do. Only trained... As I was on an ENT ward, it was only a senior doctor, a senior registrar or a consultant that would do that. And if we had to do it, we would do it with supervision because the head has to be tilted back at a certain angle. This is dangerous. There's a little structure at the top of the nose called the crib reform plate. We've talked about it before, but there's so much wrong with that clip. The irony, the hypocrisy, it it just leaves me feeling cold. And I remember when it went out.
0: Yeah, thank thank you for that, uh, Debbie. Well, take us on to the subject of WhatsApp, which of course is the meat of the Telegraph's exposure about all matters to do with government communications around COVID.
3: Yeah, so I'd just like to throw out a few of my observations and and most people will know I'm not tech minded or orientated at all. So these are a few of my observations. So I'd really appreciate some comments because I'm sure that if we're getting leaked WhatsApp messages on lockdowns, then there should be plenty of WhatsApp groups and WhatsApp messages that we could facilitate ourselves or see with regards to the vaccine injured, vaccine injuries, and serious adverse reactions, amongst other things. So I decided just to look at WhatsApp because why are we doing everything on WhatsApp? So when you go to Wikipedia, you can see that WhatsApp is now owned by Meta. So this is a private company. So when I jumped to look at Meta to make sure who was controlling Meta, amongst others, of course, we've got Mark Zuckerberg and we've also got Nick Clegg, who's president of Global Affairs. So. It's like, well, how safe is WhatsApp? And I just did, like I say, I'm just throwing out some observations here because I just did a very quick search online and this is what I found. I found out that WhatsApp might not be as safe or secure as we possibly think. And this article from the Reader's Digest says that experts would never have these apps on their smartphones either because there's security issues. So. That led me to go and have a little bit more of a, a, a deep dive. Well, it wasn't really that much of a deep dive, to be honest, because if you just put in WhatsApp and hacks into a search bar, you find other sites, and these are a few. These are just a few examples. So it would appear, and as I say, I'm not an expert, so I'm going to especially throw this over to Mike, um, Brian and Alex, but it would appear that it's not that difficult to hack WhatsApp but it's not just government business that seems to be conducted on WhatsApp, it seems that there are many, many areas that are including the police. And um, recently, this article from Sky News came up to say that Wayne Cousins had joked about sexual assault in newly released WhatsApp messages. So I'm thinking to myself, have we? why have we not brought this subject up about how secure is WhatsApp? And should we be? conducting government business on WhatsApp. So I decided to look and see what the BBC had said. And the BBC um, produced an article. You can see it here. Ministers face high court battle over WhatsApp use. Um, The government could be forced. Sorry, Brian, do you want to just interject there? Yeah, sorry.
0: What struck me, From uh, looking at the screen here in the studio is the date of that BBC headline is the 26th of October 2021. So effectively, this is in the middle. uh, This is in the middle of all the various goings on. Sorry to interrupt.
3: Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's absolutely right. So they knew this has been an ongoing situation for a while. And and I'd like to open it out to Alex as well, because, you know, we've got GCHQ, we've got MI5, we've got Porton Down. Are all these people using WhatsApp and WhatsApp groups? Because as I went and looked a little bit further, I could see that it wasn't just governments. It was actually scientific experts. And we can see that Chris Whitty, He's been leaked on the WhatsApp messages, Boris Johnson WhatsApp messages, and now we've got a row going on within the Labour Party about WhatsApp messages leaked with um, Sue Gray. So WhatsApp messages seem to be uh, um, extremely important. So then I went, I bought the newspaper every day, the Telegraph, to see what they're printing, and um, part of part of what I, well, what alerted me a little bit, was this comment on the Lockdown Diaries saying, Bill Gates owes me one, says Minister. And I thought I'd just check to see what contact Matt Hancock has had with Bill Gates and if there could be any truth around this. And of course, we can see that Matt Hancock's very proudly standing with Bill Gates at um, the WEF. So there's a lot more. And I think if we look in a little bit deeper as well, and this is going back to my deep dive, and this is something that I would like your comments on because I photographed this. I'm sorry it's so so dark, but I highlighted it from Nadim Zahawi. And he says, I am going to talk to Pascal. I have appointed, um, I know that... Sorry, I, you might have to read that because it's a little bit so it says, I'm in says,
1: bottom left box. Yeah, it says, I'm not going to talk to Pascal. I know that uh, yes, I S-I, so. uh, oh, have approval, uh, World, Health Organization, uh, World Health Organization emergency approval as of February 15th, so they can distribute those doses to many countries in need, including India, all in desperate need. We expect to have 17 million in March and April. And 18 million in May, 21 million in June, 23 million in July. Uh, so enough to vaccinate all adults twice uh, at faster pace than we're doing now. I'll make a personal decision based on the ministerial decision. I don't need any other information.
3: Thank you. Um, Two points there. Obviously that goes back to the uh- the front page of the Telegraph today to say that not enough people were dying, which was basically why the vaccine rollout wasn't fast. But also, is Nadim, who's Nadim Zahawi talking about there? Because he mentions Pascal. So I'm just I don't know whether I'm joining the right dots. I'd be very open to everyone's interpretation. But could he be referring to Pascal Swaro, um, the chief executive of AstraZeneca? Because then I looked and saw that they were very good friends. Um, and in a tweet, Nadim Zahawi has indeed congratulated his friend and fellow team member, um, Sir Pascal Suario. I'm sorry for the pronunciation there. I'm sure Alex will correct me. Um, so you just have to ask yourself the questions. And when you're looking at these, um, these articles, look at the WhatsApp messages and see what else is within them that perhaps the Telegraph or other people may have missed. So I'd welcome your comments on WhatsApp, but it seems as though we're doing all our business on WhatsApp. So surely there's vaccine injuries on WhatsApp.
0: Yeah, Uh, Debbie, I'd just just like to reinforce that uh, Zaha, we tweet there. huge congrats to my friend and fellow team member in the greatest vaccine deployment effort in history. A rise of Pascal Soirier, if that's the right pronunciation. So this this is glowing praise for something which has been carried out on the back of a complete lie to the to the British public, indeed the world
1: public. Alex, well, hold on, just before Sorry. before I just want to make a couple of points about what's up. First of all, Debbie. Uh, the first point is that that one of the things that we've been wanting to highlight and trying to highlight over quite a period of time now is the concept of dual use. We're finding that government, intelligence agencies, defense are using civilian infrastructure for the communications. This is part of the reason why Chinese companies have been thrown off the 5G networks and the telecommunications networks. It's part of the reason why uh, there's a, a keenness to get rid of TikTok and other Chinese uh software that might also be on phones um, so no matter what you think about the safety of uh, WhatsApp itself and and its encryption, uh, the fact of the matter is we're seeing all this dual use uh, being openly encouraged within government and of course, where did this start Hillary Clinton's emails you know the fact that she was doing government business on her own personal email server broke the idea of... Alex, I'd be interested in your comments on this. This broke the idea of any kind of accountability because there was no there was no way to track and trace what she was doing, who she was speaking to, what agreement she was making.
2: That is the car, the, the heart of it, there, uh, Mike. I'm afraid uh, the pronunciation stumped both Brian and Debbie. It's sorry you. Uh but let's talk about uh, classified information, really, because that's the heart of it. Uh, the whole point is that all that was being bandied about in that WhatsApp group was not classified information. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was proper to be discussing it there, uh, because this group included a, a top civil servant, Sir Simon Case, and government ministers who are also parliamentarians, of course. Are they speaking as the executive, are they speaking as government? It's very hard to tell. Um, when. Uh, laptop and mobile device communication really came into its own in the the decade of the 2000s, when I was a GCHQ officer. Uh, The fiction was still conveniently maintained in the first decade of the introduction of this technology, that ministers wouldn't really use it except when they were really on the hoof and uh, would just receive a very quick tip-off of some intelligence or other classified matter, and then they would go back to their um, open... Network communication at unclassified level, and it was up to them if they uh, mentioned any political sensitivities, but definitely not anything uh, that was government business. Of course, that has gone by the board. Uh, one of the foreign secretaries in that era managed to, with the wrong press of a button, wipe the encryption or crypt, as we call it for short, off his mobile as soon as it was issued to him. Uh, so there's user error as, as well there. The heart of it, of course, is that government ministers although they're offering, uh, they're operating on behalf of the Crown and although they're enabled by quite secure health agencies, and Down, UK health Security, health Security Agency, and indeed intelligence services, and although these services give them uh, dedicated uh, terminals, laptops, mobiles, or software and hardware to clamp onto one of these devices for the purposes of a secure conversation, their milieu these days is swimming around with lobbyists, with senior civil servants, with anyone who's brought into the club as a SPAD, a special advisor, and there is quite properly by design, no secure system for discussing things with those people because only open source material is supposed to be discussed with such people.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I I, <laughs> I just find it incredible, I have to say, go back to Cold War days when uh, communications were so, you know, carefully guarded and secret documents had to be um, confidential secret and above documents were very carefully handled. And suddenly we've now got MPs just conducting their business over, you know, public communication systems. So is this an accident? I don't think so. But of course the MPs are too stupid to understand what they're involved in. I'll say most of them are too stupid.
1: Uh, Alex, let's go to Portugal.
2: This is just to remind viewers that uh, Debbie has interviewed, and it's up on the homepage at the moment, the remarkable uh, dental surgeon, Dr. Marta da Silva Gamero, in Fatima, a town well-known for the apparitions. Um, She is single-handedly, as described in this interview, campaigning for Portugal to have a referendum uh, on whether it um, should join the WHO pandemic treaty, which Mark Anderson has been reporting on for us. Last time I was on, Uh, not Monday, but last week, we covered that in a segment and showed also her Portuguese language uh, channel on Odyssey, the video sharing service, uh, which UK Column also uses, um, where she had given her testimony uh, as she needed to, appearing before the petitions committee so that they could decide whether to process um, and um, uh, forward on her petition to the plenary of parliament. Uh, I thought it would be interesting for viewers to see with reasonably good automatic English subtitling, just a little bit of uh, Dr Gamira's defense of herself in this committee. Not the opening statement that was read from a script and that was perhaps not the most enticing thing for people to listen to. But here, after several members of parliament who belong to the Portuguese Parliamentary Petitions Committee have asked polite but skeptical questions of her, why are you doing this? She uh, gives a lively, polite defense of herself, revolving around a very important point, which is that the World Health Organization is part of the United Nations and the United Nations founding principles need to be respected. Uh, Her uh, grievance, which she says she's perfectly entitled to bring to people's attention, is those currently in the EU and the UN at the top não são as pessoas adequadas, até mesmo com os princípios de fundos enunciados nos fundos de charters e tratados dessas organizações. So então, aqueles que estão ouvindo em áudio vão ouvir ela falar português e aqueles que estão assistindo em vídeo vão ver, eu stress eles não são humanos, mas são relativamente bons, sub-titles automáticos do que ela está dizendo
7: neste momento. Vou começar por uh, a observação de ser necessário declarar, fazer uma declaração de interesse. Eu entendo como cidadã, tenho todo o direito de ter uma opinião. É verdade, tenho. Mas o que eu vi nos últimos três anos foi ser qualquer coisa que eu dizia contra o modo como estava a ser escolhida gerir a pandemia Covid-19. Eu era acusada de negacionista, era acusada de extrema-direita, era acusada de ser anti-vacinas e que queria matar os avózinhos. Pelo amor de Deus! De maneira... Eu sei que foram tempos caóticos e que quando há caos tendem-se a extremar posições e fazer declarações que muitas vezes são mais impulsionadas pelo medo do que propriamente por um, uma, uma razão racional. No entanto, eu sinto necessidade, cada vez que vou falar sobre isto, de fazer esta declaração. Porque eu, como profissional de saúde, eu tenho, o que eu tenho que pôr à frente é o interesse dos meus pacientes e respeitar o princípio básico. Eu sou médica dentista, não fiz o, o juramento Hipócrates. No entanto, também tive todas essas... Uh, disciplinas na universidade e a primeira coisa que nos ensinam é: primo non osere, primeiro não fazer mal. E desculpem mas não foi isso que foi feito durante a gestão da pandemia. E eu acho que tinha o direito de, de, de falar sem ser acusada de ser extremista. Pronto. Cooperação nacional necessária, se eu acho que ela é necessária. Eu acho que te, epa, eu, acho, eu sou perfeitamente a favor da União Europeia e das Nações Unidas, eu sou uma, eu sou uma pessoa eu nasci nos anos 80, eu cresci com a União Europeia, estou completamente dentro do sistema. Agora, por eu acreditar que precisamos de haver cooperação entre países, não quer dizer que eu não questione quando vejo que o objetivo se está a desviar do seu objetivo original. As Nações Unidas foram constituídas após a Segunda Guerra Mundial com o objetivo de cada cidadão nasceu igual, com iguais direitos e responsabilidades. Quando eu vejo que o seu, os objetivos iniciais primordiais estão a ser desviados, I am
2: not questioning the institution's right to exist, says Dr. Gamero. I am questioning the people at the helm of the institution who are forcing through pandemic treaties in this case. I refuse to be called a denier. Uh, or an idiot just because I have questions, that's why I'm sitting here before you in Parliament. And although they didn't administer the Hippocratic Oath to me because I'm a dentist, she says, it's sufficient that at university I learned that the basis of all healthcare is first do no harm. Primum no nocere. And she's quite right on that. Uh, moving on to France, the Epoch Times uh, in its French uh, brand has uh, had an extremely interesting uh, interview here uh, about a new book which has been uh, written by somebody who's rubbed shoulders with the French deep state. The book title is uh, Le Clan des Seigneurs, meaning the clan of bosses or, or, or lords, overlords. The author is Paul-Antoine Martin, who as an engineer found that he had a lot to do uh, with the great and the good or not so good in the French deep state. He's given a a candid interview. The link will, of course, be in the show notes as usual. People will be able to turn on English subtitling, which will be very accurate because they're from typed French subtitles, not automated. Um, And here he's describing how, uh, in the clip we're about to listen to, there are three uh, bodies, corps, as they're called in French, that control the senior French civil service. So the equivalent of the senior executive service in the USA or the First Division Association in the British Civil Service. Um, Of course, the French are a bit older and grander in most of these things, so they've got these bodies. Since the 1970s, they've had the ENA, the uh, École Nationale d'Administration, people might have heard of, where it's actually instead of university, people go to a special fraternity and learn to be a gorgeous senior civil servant. There are two more technical, lesser-known bodies that uh, Martin rubbed shoulders with. One is the Corps des Pants, one is the Corps des Mines, Technically, they uh, deal with infrastructure, as the name suggests, bridges and mines, but basically they have transport all sewn up. He first crossed them when he said he was applying for a particular job at a port as an engineering expert who wasn't a French civil servant. And he was told, no, no, this job is, is reserved for our fraternity, but you won't see that in on paper anywhere. Just don't think about apply, applying, chum. In this uh, section, which again, if you're listening in audio, you'll hear French, but it's subtitled in very good English for those viewing, uh, Martin describes the source of power of the French Senior Civil Service.
8: Donc, il y, a, il y a une fraternité très forte entre eux, et une l'impression qu'ils se sont constitués une, une sorte de citadelle avec des remparts très clairs, euh, ce qui est assez curieux. Ce sont des gens de pouvoir, mais qui se protègent. Voilà. Donc, il y a, a, a cette euh, antagonisme assez étonnant. Alors, quel est leur, leur véritable pouvoir? Moi, je dirais qu'il est extrêmement fort extrêmement fort puisque euh, ben, ils sont euh, ils occupent la strate toute la strate décisionnelle de la grande administration donc ils ont les, les rênes du pouvoir euh, on va dire exécutif ou en pouvoir de faire euh, sur tous les pans de l'administration et ils sont sur le temps long ce sont des gens qui font carrière et qui vont rester euh, dans leur poste plusieurs années, et qui vont rester dans le giron, en fait, de la de l'administration à laquelle ils appartiennent, ou au pan de l'administration à laquelle ils appartiennent, et donc ils ont le temps de euh, d'influencer très largement euh, le fonctionnement de cette administration et les décisions qui sont prises. Ils sont au contact direct, donc la strate du dessus, c'est le politique qui lui euh, donc c'est le cabinet ministériel, c'est le ministre, et puis au dessus c'est la c'est la présidence. Euh, le politique, lui, va va, va, va construire une, une politique qu'il souhaite étendue sur l'ensemble du pays, mais pour étendre cette politique, il faut passer par les rouages de l'administration qui elle est chargée de mettre en œuvre la politique. Et et c'est là que l'articulation peut être euh, plus ou moins euh, fluide, plus ou moins rouillée. Euh, Je je rappelle, d'ailleurs c'est étonnant, euh, Elisabeth Borne, notre première ministre, a a publié une circulaire euh, en décembre dernier rappelant avec beaucoup de force et euh, oui beaucoup de force, on va dire ça comme ça, euh, toutes les, tous les, 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 les hauts cadres de la, de la fonction publique en, les rappelant, en leur rappelant qu'ils ont l'obligation d'appliquer au plus vite les décrets une fois qu'ils sont signés donc on comprend que ce n'est pas le cas. Voilà. Et dans ce dans ce dans cet écart-là se crée, évidemment. Se crée le pouvoir qu'ils peuvent avoir de résister à une politique, de la transformer, de la ralentir, de la de l'empêcher, parce qu'il y a tellement d'arcanes dans une administration que qu'une décision peut facilement se perdre.
2: Highly, highly insightful stuff, because what Martin is saying is that there's this gap, ICAR as he calls it, between uh, policy implementation from the president or a, in other countries it, it would be a monarch, through the ministers who are accountable to parliament. When it gets to the senior, senior civil servants, they can hold it up, they can denude it of power, they can water it down, and their allegiance is to themselves, to their own giron, as he calls them, their own flock. They stay, ministers come and go. Uh, one quotation from the book we'll bring on screen here is where his slightly uh, thinly fictionalised character Schlumberger, actually the same name as uh, um, as an oil company, but uh, Schlumberger is this this uh, character who embodies the values of the uh, of the senior civil servants, and he says that, uh, uh, that the author says that uh, after a, a significant pause, Schlumberger uh, finished his speech with these uh, the, these uh, impassioned words, gentlemen. In our country, we have 50% losers, 45% mediocrities, and 5% elite. And we, we are the elite of the elite. Let's have a look at uh, a viewer's comment as well. Somebody who knows France very well. Apologies that it's grainy, but I had to take it from a messaging app of the kind we know is not secure. Uh, For those who want to uh, have a guide to what Martin is saying in the whole video, if they wish to watch it with English subtitles, which you'll find from the settings cogwheel and then go to auto translate on YouTube. Uh, Around a quarter of a minute, uh, a quarter of an hour in, Martin says that technocracy has mastery of politics, like a spider leads the fly in its web. Uh, Then he talks about the public, even in France itself, not knowing about this ENA, the École Nationale d'Administration, and its two smaller counterparts. The problem for this viewer is that the French have until now accepted that they are ruled by the elite. And uh, the the viewer refers to Hofstede's work on power distance, meaning that the French actually, despite perhaps because they they get shirty sometimes in in reaction against it, they tolerate being ruled from on high much more than the British do. However, says this insightful viewer who's now back in Britain, we uh, have uh, some problems of our own. Uh, Although we we have less tolerance for for people lording it over us, we are less egalitarian. This is why we should join with the French, says the viewer, and combine our British intolerance of haughty bosses with their pro-power, proletarian power, uh, manifestation, manifesting as it's called in in, in France, uh, demonstrating. It will have to be the Brits that follow through to demand any real change. The viewer then says that around the half-hour mark, Martin points out that the French system has been based on sycophantic behaviour among a small group of powerful people for so long, just think of Sir Simon Case and his ministerial chums in that WhatsApp group, that the French have a mature understanding of the phenomenon from which we can benefit. And at 40 minutes, the state of the super elite is more baked in for France than the UK, largely through the system of grande école or elitist training schools, a bit like British uh, Oxbridge training. But it's reinforced and enabled by the tolerance of the populace. Uh, Nevertheless, the crystalline nature of technocracy in France has much to show us in other countries as the kernel of technocracy and of soulless tyranny. A final observation by Martin, which this viewer highlighted is uh, that the system deliberately promotes mediocrities in order to create a debt of gratitude. I have a couple more in my segment, but I wonder whether uh, Mike and Brian wish to come in because uh, what Martin is saying here reflects quite a lot of the insights that we've developed at UK Column over the years, especially in dealing with the, uh, uh unaccountable senior public servants
0: exactly alex well unaccountable politicians mixing with unaccountable civil servants and of course unaccountable global business uh, leaders all mixed together in these partnerships um it's a network which is driving policy but of course the other bit which is always left on the sidelines is that we're not just dealing with people using normal language to coerce people into their into adhering to their policy policies or misleading them where they want to uh, take people's eye off the ball we've now got the use the political use of applied psychology in order to get people to do things which they would not necessarily do if they were thinking in their normal frame of mind. This is the danger, and my mind goes back, Mike, uh, to the exposure that the UK column did on the work between the uh, French government and and, uh, UK government in Cameron's time, uh, where the French expert, Oliver Willier, Uh, came to the UK in order to help the Behavioural Insights team learn how to con the UK public even better. But, you know, this is an excellent clip, but uh, there's so much more to be said about this use of of, uh, dangerous political applied psychology.
2: And where does this leave French foreign policy, or indeed the foreign policy of other Western countries? Well, a a clip we're about to see will enunciate that quite well. It's a press conference that was just held with unexpected fireworks between uh, Félix who was hosting it in Kinshasa, the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Emmanuel Macron. Of course, there's two Congos. It's the one across the river, Congo Brazzaville, that used to be the French colony, um, but they still have French, of course, as the language of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This is even more astonishing, bearing that in mind, what you're about to uh, see, because uh, Tshisekedi is not even ticking off his uh, his own former colonial master. He's ticking off the French as an embodiment of general Western arrogance. And of course, being a French-speaking country, he gets Macron visiting. You won't find the clip we're about to see uh, in the mainstream news. It was from Saturday, the 4th of March. Um, While you're uh, listening to it, you won't hear the French original because it's quite hard to get this clip. And for better English subtitling, I've gone for a version which is overdubbed in Arabic. Uh, But uh, presuming people don't speak Arabic, most of our viewers just watch the the subtitles. Uh, uh, Tisha Kevi springs a surprise for Macron here in the clip you're about to see. Uh, Macron blithely assumes that the reason he's being told off for paternalism uh, is because the French press said something about the opposition, that Macron then grandstands in a bit that's been cut out of this clip and says, my dear fellow, you must understand we have a free press. The same stuff that you hear, the same guff you hear from the Germans when they are... uh, asked about their relationship with Russia, that the, um, the foreign minister there, Baerbock, made a similar uh, gaffe recently and said, we have uh, free, free, free press, presser Freiheit, which she, she mis- mispronounced as presser Freiheit, meaning freedom to guzzle. No, it, that, Ma- Macron didn't get off that easily because it wasn't that that it annoyed the host, President Tshisekedi. it's the fact that the recent former foreign minister, Jean-Yves Le Trion, had blamed the Congolese, or by extension, the whole of sub-Saharan Africa for its own poverty and thus was being paternalistic
1: وتشاهد الكليب ان في مع فرنسا واوروبا ان تنظروا الى افريقيا وان تحترمونا وليس ان
5: الينا
1: عندما que les français لا. il de pas de, de la France. n'y
5: a plus, il y en a eu.
2: propos de Le
6: Drian.
1: français. Oui, mais je suis ce Le Drian, le Mais cette formule, Président.
2: Oh dear, doubly embarrassing for Macron there. And in a bit that was uh, spliced out of that edit, Macron actually started deploying the cheesy line, which you sometimes uh, hear when you have a difficult conversation at work and people get shown up. When they say, it's good we're having th- this conversation, it's nice to get it out in the open, isn't it, when they mean anything but. And it, that's exactly what Macron said. It's nice to have this game of ping pong with you, President Tisha Kedi, to get this out in the open. But it wasn't because had Kedi had a, uh, another, uh, another uh, blast of his, his blunderbuss Uh, in store uh, regarding who'd actually said this paternalistic remark. Uh, One more from me from the Netherlands, because the natural um, uh, terminus of this horror of unaccountability in the senior civil service is child abuse. Uh, Joris Devink has long been accused of a retired, very senior, former Dutch civil servant of child abuse. He's been through uh, trials and he's now got a lifetime Um, immunity from prosecution on the matter, so I'll tread carefully. De Andere Krant is a a, a truth newspaper in the Netherlands which has picked up on a very recent parliamentary commission reporting on this, I would say, uh, awful man, but that's just my personal view, uh, because he was the top civil servant uh, at a ministry for years uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, The Turks accused him of molesting children when he was on official, official visits there. Now, with the election of uh, members of Parliament of the Forum for Democracy, uh, which uh, will, are not afraid to take these matters on, one of their members of Parliament, Gideon von Meieren, has described the recently released Hendricks Commission report uh, on the whole issue of uh, organised ritual child abuse. The Dutch press are calling it that now, at least the, the free press are. He calls it uh, a, 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 an investigation for show and and a. Uh, 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 as striking the face of all the victims. Uh, The title of the report itself is, uh, this is a very Dutch style title, Between Unbelief Support and uh, Detection. Uh, The commission decided that there is organized and very violent abuse of children in the Netherlands, but we cannot prove that there are active networks that abuse children in in any ritualistic or Satanist manner. Von Meyeren didn't take this halfway house uh, he said in a parliamentary debate in the 19th of January, of course, there is evidence of Satanist ritual abuse. Look at Lisa and then quote somebody uh, who's been on, uh, on Dutch radio, uh, mainstream radio, for having been a victim at the age of 15. And then points out Demink is the natural uh, 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 terminus of this, uh, this accusation. Uh, and then. The paper goes on to remind people that actually members of the U.S. Congress in 2012 uh, wrote uh, in a letter to the EU that they doubted whether the Netherlands, a key state for these matters, was actually able to tackle child abuse and uh, what's called here child pornography, best described as uh, footage of child abuse, uh, because Deming was in a very high position um, and that they the um, uh, tolerance that the Dutch government had for a pederast club called Martijn was very much uh, worrying the Americans uh, as well. Uh, the, the current state of affairs, as I understand it, is that the Dutch pr- prosecutors, the OM, the Open Ministerie, uh, have a policy paper in place that as soon as an accusation is made that re- abuse was of a Satanist nature, it will be blocked from being prosecuted. So that's a very convenient way for the Dutch government to insist that there is no SRA going on in the country.
1: Okay, thanks, Alex. Let's come back to the UK then. And of course, uh, Rishi Sunak has been hosting uh, a press conference yesterday, uh, all about his five priorities, the fifth of the five priorities, uh, which is about stopping the boats. Uh, So let's just briefly uh, have a look at what they were pushing out on the number 10 Twitter feed today. Uh, So they're going to, this is the illegal migration bill has been announced. Uh, It's going to uh, stop Uh, If you come to the UK illegally, you will be stopped from submitting spurious claims to frustrate removals. If you come to the UK illegally, you'll be banned from ever claiming asylum in the UK. If you come to the UK illegally, you'll be denied access to the UK's modern slavery system. Uh, And if you come to the UK illegally, you'll be detained and removed to a safe country in weeks. Well, I'm just going to focus on this last one for now, uh, because the question is, is that a realistic uh, claim that they would be able to achieve? Let's have a look at this from the Migration Observatory at Oxford University. Uh, this is a Q&A on the UK's policy to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, because this is a safe country that they're talking about. Uh, 10th of January, 2022, this was published. They say there's no cap on the number of people who will be transferred. However, initial news reports suggest that the Rwandan facility currently has the capacity to house around 100 people at once and process the claims of up to 500 occupants per year. Okay. Last year, or in 2020, sorry, the UK they say made around 19,000 asylum decisions. So I'm not quite sure how they're going to manage to do that. But anyway, let's check and see whether this is correct. Let's look at the uh, UK government official statistics: irregular migration to the UK year ending September 2022. Uh, and uh, when we we look at it, it's roughly around uh, January September 2022, 40,000 detections. At the UK border, by method of entry, this is the, this graph. Uh, so the number of detections was around forty thousand, and around thirty-four thousand of those were coming across in small boats. So I'm not quite sure how they're going to uh, uh, ship all those back out to Rwanda when Rwanda doesn't have the uh, capacity to to take them. Uh, but I, I just wanted to have a look at at who are the people that are coming at the moment, uh, and if we look at uh, the nationalities arriving via small boats. Uh, We can see that by far the largest grouping that's coming by small boat in 2022 is from Albania. Uh, We've talked about this before, uh, and we've talked about the uh, British involvement in Albania, particularly Tony Blair and Cherie Blair, and so on. Um, But let's, you know, they're talking about putting uh, some money into this, Alex, uh, to get people back out of the country. They're saying that um, that people will not be able to access. Uh, modern slavery uh, facilities and, and so on. Uh, this has had a response from the UN who have said that this is deeply unfair and takes uh, the UK into borderline uh, unlawful territory with respect to international law anyway and how migrants are treated. But the point here, the question here is, or let's let's just, before we get your comments, put this on screen and just remind everybody, we talked about this on Friday, I think, last week, the fact that the government is spending £1 billion, Uh, a year on accommodation for people that the majority of them are coming from Albania. I'm not quite sure when there's this amount of uh, money being spent on the people that are coming to this country, what this legislation is going to achieve. And my question to you is, is this a genuine effort by the UK government, do you think, or is this really all about the British Bill of Rights and getting the UK out of uh, human rights obligations that it has uh, internationally?
2: It's the latter, Mike, and we circle back really to the digital identity issue with which we began this news broadcast, because there again, it's another area that you can properly call constitutional, so significant it is, in which the government decided before the crisis, whether it be Brexit or Covid or migrants, uh, that it wished a new arrangement with fewer immunities for the people, whether they are uh, natives or newcomers, and then decides to make up the policy on the hoof with a post hoc justification Uh, If you are looking at the ECHR obligations from Strasbourg, that treaty of course predates the EU, uh, which is often used to tell the British government it's acting unlawfully, uh, or even from the UN level. Uh, Strangely enough, the Danish government doesn't have any problem, just as it did with. Uh, the EU's justice and uh, the EU's military affairs. It opted out of those whole pillars at some points. So Denmark has uh, managed to get itself treaty opt-outs which allow it to remain within the ECHR and yet refuse to process asylum seekers for Denmark within Denmark. Uh, It now uses Rwanda. So uh, what's going on there proves, whichever way you want to look at it politically, uh, that there is a way of uh, honouring international law obligations and tackling the system tackling the backlog. The backlog, as you've just pointed out there, isn't being tackled and therefore international law is just a front for what's going on.
1: Yes. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Now, sticking in the UK then, uh, thanks to Josie for sending this through this morning. I just want to uh, uh, let everybody know about, uh, well, today, of course, International Women's Day. And uh, so the press release about this says that 1950s born women, uh, from right across the UK are meeting outside Parliament or at Parliament Square to draw attention to the issue of pensions uh, for women. Now, of course, uh, in the, we, we are well aware of the protests going on with respect to pensions in France, uh, but this doesn't seem to get quite the coverage. Uh, so wh- the women uh, complaining, this is the uh, Women Against State Pension Inequality, uh, talking about the fact that uh, you know many of them were already 58 years old when the Department of Work and Pensions decided uh, to change the pension rules and make uh, state pension only available for women that are 66 or older. Um, And so anyway, they are now taking this to judicial review. They're protesting today outside parliament, but they're taking this to to judicial review. Apologies, they have already raised the money for this. Um, And so the point is that they've attempted to take this to the financial ombudsman. Uh, The ombudsman decided that uh, they had no case. Um, and so they're taking this to to just review and hopefully they will uh, because i mean at the end of the day it was absolutely obscene that the rules were changed with basically no no notice and many of these uh, people uh, had made life decisions uh, already and this completely destroyed those Um, so um, you know it was inappropriate that people were only given two years notice yeah absolutely so a lot more to be said on that Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and uh, you, as a member, would be very welcome and your membership very much appreciated and needed. Uh, You can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, Please do share material you find on the various platforms. Okay, thank you for that. Well,
0: just a reminder that at one o'clock tomorrow, we'll be streaming out the interview that I did with uh, Moira Malcolm, also known as Moira Dundee. Uh, She'll be talking about... uh, uh, the dangers of lockdown and she has a fascinating story to tell so i hope people will tune in and watch that uh, reminder about sunday 22nd of october 2023 uh, av 13 and uh, this is the uh, leonardo hotel where it will be held it's a day event but if you need accommodation you have to contact the hotel yourself and also a reminder that we've got a um, a live streamed uh, AV coming out in April. Actually, the date is the twenty-third. I think I said the twenty-second yesterday. Apologies for that. Um, so watch out for that. UK Column will be helping with that event as well. Now we've had some interesting uh, emails come in from UK Column supporters. We are very tight to time for time today, but just worth giving these a mention. So. Uh, We've got an email from a UK column viewer to Damien Collins MP. Dear Mr Collins, can you tell me if King Charles will be placing his signature at the base of the coronation oath without any redactions and will he abide by it? I'd also like to know if he'll abide by the common law rights contained in this act. Uh, Reply came back and it said um dear mr glenn thank you for your email i would not presume to speak to the king but i'm sure that he will do whatever is expected during the coronation including signing the coronation oath uh, her late majesty queen elizabeth ii signed it at the top of the oath rather than at the bottom though with respect to statute and common law rights i'm not sure you entirely understand what these terms mean Common law is that part of the law which arises from custom and judicial precedent rather than statute. Acts of parliament create law through statute. I, of course, will always strive to obey the law and not just and not just because I am a member of parliament and therefore a lawmaker. Thank you once again for taking the time to write. And uh, um, Mr. Glenn went back again. Uh, and he said, dear Mr. Collins, from your reply, see below, you're a public servant because you took the oath of office. The oath represents loyalty to the King Queen, who represents the rule of law under the Constitution. The King Queen, in turn, promised to keep the people to govern according to laws and customs, common law, meaning to keep the established rule of law according to the Constitution. This, in turn, means keeping the people's sovereignty. Now, there is more there, but people can freeze the screen. Uh, I'm going to pass to you, Alex, if you would, for a very short comment, uh, because we've got uh, quite a bit of material we'd like to move on to.
2: Common law rights uh, is perhaps not the tightest expression to use, uh, but what uh, has been pointed out now by by Mr. Glenn is, of course, completely sound. There was a treaty between the monarch and the people in 1688. Uh, It then received statutory form in the Coronation Oath Act, That is the condition on which the Crown is given. And the Crown recognises, and I will say it, although I get a lot of criticism for saying such things, that the common law is anterior and superior to common law. It came before, to statute law. It came before and outranks the very opposite of what uh, Mr. Collins and the whole legal fraternity now claim.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Well, we need to get educating our politicians. Another email here, a very interesting one, Uh, where a lady says, basically, what can I do if my MP is not responding? So Dr. Andrew uh, Morrison had been asked about 5G, but he isn't responding to this lady. And uh, so she ends up saying, what can I actually do? Well, the simple reply is to contact the local party chairman and stay on their case, because when the local party chairman understands that people in the... um, um, Thank you. the cat sorry, the constituency. Uh, uh, constituency, thank you, Mike, when the chairman understands that people are not happy, they very quickly put pressure back on the MP. So target the local party chairman, but once you do it, stay on their case and, as always, be polite and respectful. Uh, we've got another viewer here who's uh, not very happy that's uh, tried to challenge the BBC regarding excess deaths and has simply got the usual BBC fob off saying didn't we do a good job in reporting all the false information uh, they didn't quite say that but you get the meaning uh, what have you got to do here you've got to start challenging the individuals running the bbc and not just treating the bbc as a an organization that runs itself so get onto the bbc board stay on the case that's the rule now uh, let's do a quick update on uh, ukraine of course bachman is still the key issue And um, essentially, Bakhmud is encircled. This was our report uh, we had on the news on Monday, uh, where we said that there was confusion because troops were being withdrawn, but troops, uh, Ukrainian troops were also being pushed back into the encirclement. And this situation still seems to be going on but it's got more complicated because of the interaction between Zelensky and his generals. Uh, But I'm going to stress again that we don't know the exact number of troops in Bakhmud and the immediate defensive environment. But the estimates that I have seen that I believe are are, um, believable are between 7,000 to 20,000 troops. There are many people pointing towards that higher figure as Zelensky reinforces failure so a lot of pressure still coming on you might have seen information about flooded ukrainian trenches what the uh, western press is not telling western audiences is that the ukrainians destroyed the dam of a reservoir which is located up to the north western edge of bakhmud encircled by yellow when the flood took place it moved up into these areas highlighted by the uh, blue arrows and Essentially, Ukrainian trenches were flooded because of the freezing conditions at the time. This made them uninhabitable, and so the Ukrainian action themselves caused the flooding of the trenches. Uh, but we've got the mail horror of the trenches returns to Europe. Ukrainian forces fight in mud. Well, they would do because actually in many in, in on many occasions, the temperatures have been a, above average. And uh, so there's been a slight thaw as well. But here is the the Daily Mail trying to say that the Russians are simply fighting by sending in waves of troops which are being moaned down by the Ukrainians. This is complete and utter lie. The reality is the Russians are doing everything they can to stay out of the city uh, but kill off the defenders with shelling. So uh, Moscow has sent thousands into the moor of Ukrainian machine guns, with troops charging across a muddy hellscape, strewn with the corpses of their own comrades. This is 180 degrees out, and it should be written as to what's been happening with Ukrainian attacks. Um, This one, I think, uh, is the BBC at its very best. Uh, The BBC would have us uh, believe that Russia, the country with the hypersonic missiles which can't be matched in the US or the West, beg your pardon, come back to that, Is using uh, entrenching tools to fight in the trenches. Uh, Well, the irony is, of course, that these tools were used by great by Russian forces on the Eastern Front in World War II to great effect as being very useful in hand-to-hand combat, which is taking place in Ukraine. But uh, BBC would have us believe the Russians are running out of weapons and ammunition and are using. uh, are using these entrenching tools to fight. So here's the Kiev independent. Ukraine war latest after Bachman. They could go further. Well, that's a pretty educated statement by Zelensky. Uh, This uh, picture on screen is of a Ukrainian fighter who's now died. Um, What are the deaths overall? We simply don't know the figure that I believe is correct or close to being correct is 300,000, but the Western media dare not disclose this because of course it would reveal the true disaster that is uh, unfolding for Ukraine um, in the country at the moment. So here's The Hill reporting, Zelensky vows Ukraine will continue to defend bakhmut This is tactical for us. Uh, well, English is not his first language, but this shows that he doesn't understand the battlefield because what is happening is strategic, not tactical. Um, but he says this is tactical for us. We understand that after Bachmut, they could go further. Well, I think many people realize the Russians are going to go further. They could go on to Krematorsk. They could go to Slovyansk. It would be an open road for the Russians after Bakhmut to other towns in Ukraine in the Donetsk direction. So here, Zelensky is showing that the Western media utterly lying when the Western press and media says that Bakhmut is not a strategic town. It is, because when it's captured, uh, this is a major breach in defenses. Russia needs at least some victory, Zelensky said, if Moscow were to put their little flag atop bakhmut it would mobilise their society in order to create this idea. There's such a powerful army, but uh, as we showed again on Monday, um, uh, most of the roads are now uh, controlled by the Russians, and the the small back roads that are open are very muddy, and this is very difficult for vehicles to pass safely. And um, uh, This is uh, the hill again. And if we have a look at this uh, report backwards value is considered symbolic. So here is the Western media trying to reverse the truth. This is a strategic defeat about to be unfold on Ukraine. Um, But basically Western press says, well, it's just symbolic. Um, We've got a comment about the um the area being a major defense line for the ukrainian troops and that is absolutely true that's what the russians are saying and uh, it says down at the end holding Bakhmut for so long has allowed ukraine to inflict heavy losses on russia the reverse is true so russia estimates that ukraine has lost eleven thousand men in in uh, Bakhmut in february alone and that is believed to be a very accurate estimate and then far from waves of russians the opposite is true ukrainians are being slaughtered by russian artillery and bombing attacks and uh, zelensky has decided he's going to override his generals who are talking about retreating quite sensibly Um, he's going to pour more troops into the cauldron and those troops are going to die with some of the um some of the units
1: uh, losing between 70 and 80% of their strength. Um, so uh, you're already talking about uh, um, how the narrative is changing to justify the loss of uh, Bakhmut. And uh, we'll just bring Lloyd Austin, the uh, US Defense Secretary on screen. He was in Jordan on Monday afternoon. Uh, and uh, well, he discussed this. Uh, he said that this has been a contested area for several months. The Russians have desperately tried to seize Bakhmut And over several months, they've not made much progress. Uh, He said, if the Ukrainians decide to reposition in some of the terrain uh, that's west of Bakhmut, I would not view that as an operational or strategic setback. Uh, So the fall of Bakhmut won't necessarily mean that the Russians have changed the tide of this fight. Yeah, Uh, this is is a lie. This is a complete lie on on the West. Yes. Uh, Should we move on to uh, Debbie? Uh, We should indeed. Yes. Okay. Debbie, uh, where are we starting?
3: Um, Would you like to start with trust perhaps? Because we've spoken about trust quite a lot. And um, I just thought we'd just take a a second just to pause a minute and look at the word trust. So I I went and looked at psychology today and um, I was struck by this, this here, trust or the belief that someone or something can be relied on to do what they say they will is a key element of social relationships and a foundation for cooperation, critical for romantic relationships, friendships, interactions between strangers and social groups on a large scale. And a lack of trust in such scenarios can come with serious consequences. Indeed, society as a whole would likely fail to function in the absence of trust. And I just noticed that trust seems to have been embedded in our psyche. So I just wanted to see what uh, patient experience was like. How much confidence do patients have in clinicians? And I was interested in this report from the Nuffield Trust. that was last updated on the 15th of December, 2022. And I've screenshot a couple of the graphs. I'd recommend everybody goes and has a look at that report. And Mike, you're the data cruncher, but from my eyes, I can see that although patients' confidence and trust in clinicians comparing across the NHS, and we're comparing across children and and young peoples across to maternity services, GP services, although they have decreased a little tiny bit. There's still a remarkable amount of trust in the NHS is what well, I'm reading.
1: Well, I, um, I think it's sorry, quite significant sig- Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's quite a significant decline. So if we look at uh, 2020, the young, the children and young people survey in 2020, uh, that was uh, um, over 80%. Um, so, you know, it has dec- declined quite a bit, it seems.
3: Yeah, hopefully it's on, on the on the right way. But it still shows, and, and I'm still speaking to people that are still trusting their GPs and their clinicians, and, and often quite rightly so, because they've got very good GPs and clinicians. So we're not saying that they're lying or that we shouldn't trust them. But it's interesting the way that trust has become embedded. And I was interested in this recent speech by Penny Mordaunt um, called Trust in Britain. Now it's quite an ambiguous title, and when I read it out to Brian, you know it was like, well, trust do we tr- are we asking everybody else to trust in Britain because Britain's a great place to be? Or are we saying that trust in Britain and the trust within Britain with us is is failing a little bit? And one of the little um, segments that I put on that previous slide, and I think it's important to highlight is that Penny Morden says, being a government minister, Having attended Davos, I am clearly part of this group. I embraced for a post speech social media pylon as to why I'm an apologist for a global Illuminati hell bent on ending humanity as we know it. Now, she, she made this speech for the Edelman's UK Trust Barometer um, only just recently on the 1st of March. Now, the Edelman um, Institute is this, is, it's called a trust barometer, but it's actually a PR company, a massive communications company with clients like Nestle and Dow Chemical and Roach, to name but a few. So, a massive, massive organization that I hadn't heard of before. So, I took a closer look at Penny Morden's speech. And the next few slides, I won't read them all out because I know we're really tight for time. So, if you just want to, freeze the screen and have a look at some of the segments. She says clearly she's not being paid to attend. Um, And also in the next slide, um, especially on the right-hand side, um, please screenshot it and read it. She, She makes observations about what she's seen in mainstream broadcasts and that the air raids in Ukraine are fake, that controversial ca- calming, traffic calming measures are not the product of an overbearing Lib Dem Council, but a global conspiracy to get us all to eat insects. So it's a very interesting speech that I just wanted to signpost people to. And there's one more screenshot. And again, I'll just say, just freeze the screen and just read some of the things that she's been saying. But um, clearly at the end of her speech, she says, we can tell the difference though, right? with a question mark. And just just to end this little segment, I just wanted to give a few examples of where we see the word trust, because I, I think we see it all over the place, but we're not actually aware of it, because who are we trusting? We're trusting the Welcome Trust, really. The World Economic Forum, that came from the World Economic Forum. We're trusting the Office for National Statistics. They want us to trust, trust them trust them we're trusting the world health organization we're trusting the prince's trust we don't seem to be trusting ourselves and when we go to financial we can look and see that we're trusting the world bank trusts you know trust has um, a multitude of meanings and i'm sure maybe an extra alex might like to comment on that but we're seeing the word trust everywhere that's also a a highlight of penny mordant's speech but where else nhs trust And you can see there from Wiki, it's an organisational unit within the National Health Services of England and Wales. So wherever we go, we see trust. And I just noticed as I was walking around my neighbourhood recently, the post box, because I hadn't noticed that all of a sudden we've got NHS signs supporting the NHS because the Royal Mail want us to have trust in them. Now, they want us to have trust in order to get rapid COVID tests back to them now. Why are we seeing this appearing on our post boxes now? Why are we seeing a priority post boxes? Because we're hearing from many people through through the column that they are receiving COVID-19 tests. They're being asked to take them and to send them back as a matter of priority. And my question is why? So trust is a word that maybe we should just take a little bit more look of and learn to trust ourselves, learn to trust our own research, Don't trust anyone other than yourself. Which brings me on very quickly to the MHRA board meeting. Always like to put out a shout for Dame June Rain. As you can see, it's being um, held on Tuesday, the 21st of March, 2023. Please do um, uh, book your tickets, they're free. It doesn't cost anything, but please bear in mind that when you write questions, they have to, if you're writing a question that you want answered, on the day of the board meeting, it has to follow the agenda. So there's just a very quick screenshot of the agenda. So if you want to make full use of your question and ensure that it gets answered at the board meeting, you can see the Agency Performance, Scientific Organisation, Dynamic Organisation and Effective Governance are on the agenda for this this uh, next MHRA board meeting. I'm sorry to say that there isn't anything there on patient safety. Another thing I just wanted to um, signpost people quickly to was to a BMJ article about nothing about us without us. Now I've been using this term many, many times, the autism community use it, but it has been taken from disability rights activists to cover pretty much every area now. So it's a great phrase for everyone to use because really when we're looking at vaccine injuries and we're looking at the MHRA clearly nothing about us without us which was why I was very pleased to see a faculty of pharmaceutical medicine highlighting the fact that they were very pleased that the MHRA were to be congratulated um, because they were following this nothing about us without us um doctrine and that they had um, published a new report. Well, it's not really that new, actually. Um, But the Patient Involvement Strategy, which is the nothing about us without us, the Patient Involvement Strategy 2021-2025 is a very interesting document that I think everybody should turn their attention to because particularly it mentions yellow card, it says that um, the patient's involvement strategy will include the awareness of the yellow card scheme. Well, that's interesting because I believe the yellow card scheme is going to be changed to um, another scheme, Safety Connect. It also says that they want to improve user experience of the yellow card. So my question to those that are vaccine injured, is your uh, experience of the yellow card good? Because I don't believe it is, but I think we should all be looking at this document. So thank you for letting me talk about the MHRA. Again, it's still top of my radar as our vaccine adverse reactions.
1: Thank you, Debbie. And uh, I guess we'll end uh, with, with this. And I've got to be interested in your comments on this, because uh, on Monday, the BBC had uh, a, an episode of Panorama, as usual, uh, and it was entitled Elon Musk's Twitter storm. And the wonderful Mariana Spring was hosting it. Uh, this she published an article on the BBC, Twitter insiders that can't uh, we can't protect users from trolling under Musk. This was subsequent to the panorama uh, uh, pr- uh, play out. Uh, Twitter insiders have told us, have told the BBC that the company is no longer able to protect users from trolling, state coordinated disinformation and child sexual exploitation following layoffs and changes under owner Elon Musk, Exclus- exclusive academic data plus testimony from Twitter users backs up their allegations suggesting hate is thriving under Mr. Musk's uh, leadership with trolls emboldened, harassment intensifying, and a spike in accounts following misogynistic and abusive profiles. Uh, And she says that her investigation also reveals concerns that child sexual exploitation is on the rise at Twitter, that targeted harassment campaigns aimed at curbing freedom of expression and foreign influence operations uh, are going undetected, that exclusive data showing how misogynistic online hate targeting her, uh, Mariana Spring, is on the rise since the takeover, and that rape survivors have been targeted by accounts that have become more active since the takeover. So Elon Musk is a very naughty boy. Uh, and uh, well, Mariana Spring had a little bit to say on a BBC newscast podcast. Let's have a listen to this.
9: Twitter had a really big problem with trolling. Um, But what the panorama looks at is the work that was being done, the tangible work that employees were doing to protect users from hate that according to um, Twitter's internal research, did appear to be having a positive impact. And when you look at my own online abuse, and that's something we explore in the panorama because newscasters may know that I sometimes find myself on the receiving end of trolls for covering mm. disinformation and conspiracies and abuse. Um, we looked into that and while my online abuse was 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 not very good um, in 2021, um, in, 2022, in 2022 it got a lot better um, across all of the social media sites and then towards the end of 2022, after Musk took over Twitter, um, this data, which was analysed by the University of Sheffield and the uh, International Centre for Journalists, shows that my online abuse tripled following the takeover. And that, in some ways, was the jumping off point for this investigation.
1: So poor Mariana being abused on Twitter. I'd like to know what her definition of abuse is. But um, uh, I'm fascinated that uh, the things that she highlights just happen to be exactly the types of things that the government wants highlighted in preparation for the online safety bill. Uh, but anyway, uh, Debbie, I just wonder what your thoughts are on that very briefly.
3: Well, I hadn't seen that clip. So um, the the length of the microphone seems to be matching yeah. the length of her nose. I'm sorry, but that was so obvious. Um, but I did actually see this program and I was fascinated because Mariana Spring, it talk about double standards, in my opinion. Mariana Spring couldn't get hold of Elon Musk. She wanted to interview Elon Musk desperately and he wasn't responding to any of her messages. So she did a Twitter poll on whether people on Twitter would agree that Panorama and Mariana Spring as disinformation correspondent should conduct an interview with Elon Musk, as Elon Musk had done, as should he be chief twit, I think it was he'd done. So she was following his line. And he hasn't replied to her so my question is um if mariana spring is watching perhaps uk column should do a poll on twitter because i've also asked mariana spring many times for an interview to discuss what we know to share knowledge and she's not replying to me so talk about double standards do you think we should uh, conduct our own poll on twitter perhaps
0: Uh, we do We, we think this is a really good idea and we'll keep pushing uh miss spring uh to see whether she bounces back as it were in order to say yes but i think the answer will be no yeah we'll see i think we need to leave it there we we do do we want to put an image of the young lady oh well maybe we
1: should yes okay alex
2: (laughs) yes there we are so uh andrew Stribling uh noticed the phrase trolling state coordinated disinformation in Mariana Springs uh, reporting. So he, he got back at her with, thanks for confirming your areas of expertise and experience. Enjoy your day hoovering up all the data for your next hit job, while the rest of us watch UK column at 1pm for the real news, to which I can only add, I hope you're reading the articles on ukcolumn.org as well, uh, which will uh, have many additions in the coming days, starting of course with Debbie Evans' latest uh, blog, which will be up on the comment section as soon as I can manage today.
1: Okay, brilliant, thank you. All right, excellent. Well, very
0: big thank you to everybody who's joined us today, wherever you are in the world. Uh, Thank you very much, your support is greatly appreciated. Of course, if you uh, want to continue with us into extra time, you do need to be a full paid-up member of uh, UK Columns, so perhaps you might consider that if you're not. But we're going to say thank you to everybody for joining us for the news. And we'll be back for extra time in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.